and Bernie Sanders in uh, Kuala Lumpur. And uh, we've got a team going there in March, the 6th through the 15th. And uh, what? Bernie Sanders? Did I say Bernie Sanders? That was not Bernie Sanders, was it? And he plays for the Lakers. Now I know who comes week after week after week. Yeah. The Towers, Bernie and Carrie Towers, yeah. It's a little hard to hear the, uh, the um, video, and uh, she was talking about, Carrie was talking, she was a nurse, and she was talking about a medical ministry that they have. They're going into homes of pregnant moms who are there, who are from Central Asia and the Middle East and places like that, refugees, and uh, they're helping them with health care. So they do, they do medical things on one side, and they're engaging with the gospel on the other side evangelistically, and they're doing discipleship. Uh, with the majority people there as well and just trying to help them. So there's a wide uh, waterfront that they work on as, uh, as workers there. And so pray for them. Pray as you get ready to give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions. I believe our goal is $45,000. And so we're looking to raise that and, and give that in the early part of December, all right? So, hey, let's open our Bibles together to Acts chapter 9, verses uh, 1 to 31. It's on page 917 if you're using the Bible there in the, in the pew rack. On page 917, I want to thank David Gantenbein, our family ministries pastor, for uh, leading us last week through the study of God's word and preaching, and uh, it was good. I love hearing about the providence of God, how God is at work in the foreground and the background of our lives, constantly at work, moving us and placing us right where he wants us to be for his purposes, for his glory and our good. All of that working together. I, I loved that, that message. I appreciate him preaching. And then, uh, hey, December, in December, on the 8th, beginning that Sunday, we're going to move into a series of messages around Christmas. And so uh, we're going to be looking from the gospel or from the prophet Isaiah, if you will, and we're going to be talking about who Jesus is. The, the title of the series is Promises Made, Promises Kept. And we're going to see how God was at work hundreds of years before the birth of Christ to predict that one would come and who he would be and what he would do. We're going to see that through Isaiah. Pastor Brian's going to preach during that series. Pastor Cody's going to preach. You're going to get to hear from me again and again. Hey, uh, it's, it's going to be good. We're going to have a great Christmas together. I'm looking forward to that, and I appreciate those guys preaching during that month as well. Our passage this morning, this passage, is, I think, about the most pivotal person in the book of Acts. We meet Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 7, where he is holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen, the first Christian martyr, where they're stoning him to death. And in chapter 8, when we turn that page, we see Paul, or Saul, pressing the persecution of believers even more fiercely, so much so that believers are being driven out of the city of Jerusalem and into the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. And that's his work. And today, we're going to see him on the road to Damascus. So now he's really pushing out even further, going about 150 miles to hunt down Christians. But before he ever gets there, he's confronted by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He's converted and he's commissioned to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to really to the nations, to the known world. And as we walk through this passage, we're going to see, man, this guy is an unlikely convert to Christianity. This guy is, it's unlikely that he would have ever come to faith, but it's a complete turnaround for him. I mean, it's a complete 180. 
How in the world does a guy like this ever come to faith in Jesus? This text, if it teaches us anything, it teaches us this, that no one anywhere under any circumstances is beyond the reach of the gospel. You probably have somebody in mind already, if you're a believer, someone in your family, someone you work with, someone in your neighborhood, and you need to apply this, you need to let this work its way down into your heart and into your life. No one anywhere under any circumstances is beyond the reach of the gospel. Before we get into uh, Saul's story, before we see this long scene here, I want us to listen and watch another story, someone from among us who might have considered himself, at least, an unlikely convert. This is Daryl Mitchell. I want us to watch his story. I grew up here in Phoenix, Arizona. I grew up to a single mother and two other siblings. During my teenage years is when the, the drastic turn in my life came about, and it was during that, that crucial moment at uh, the age of 14 where my life began to take a, a, a deep dive into some uh, bad things. I became heavily involved in, in gang, uh, in criminal activity. Um, I first was arrested at the age of 13 where I spent some time in Juvenile Hall. And it was January 7, 2007. I remember it like it was yesterday. Some friends and I were driving around uh, Phoenix um, in a stolen vehicle um, looking for rival gang members uh, to harm. As the officer got behind us, um, obviously he ran our license plate only to come out that it was stolen. And so he um, turned on his lights to pull us over, in which my friend and I decided that we were not going to stop. He, being the passenger, decided that he would get the police off of us. And so he began to fire shots at the officer outside of the passenger side window. I ended up being sentenced to not, uh, 10 and a half years in prison. And it was during that time uh, two years after I was incarcerated that I developed a relationship with another prisoner in there who happened to be a Christian and he began to share with me the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was uh, full of pride um, and arrogance over the things that I had done and so there was no uh, sense of remorse for what I had done, only a regret because I had been caught for what I had done. I ended up embracing the gospel um, and it was in that moment that I was convicted of my sin and ended up believing that Jesus Christ uh, had died for my sin and that he had rose again. It was from that moment that I began to become remorseful for about, about my sin, about the things that I had done um, to people, done to myself, and ultimately done to God. During that time, I ended up uh, renouncing my gang affiliations. I came to understand who I was in Christ, and that became my solid foundation. I was ended up released from prison in the year of 2015, December 11th. A few months after my release, I ended up meeting my, my, my lovely wife um, and her and Khalil, and uh, we courted each other for quite some time, for a few months, and then we ended up getting married. I would have never even conceived of serving Christ because the road that I was headed on was a road that was definitely uh, towards destruction. By the grace of God and by his, his mercies, he had a different plan for my life, and it took an unexpected turn. No matter how far gone an individual may be, um, how deep in sin they may be in, I believe that God can save anyone, and I'm living proof of that. I know that if God could touch a, a calloused, uh, a hardened heart as mine and, and transform it, I believe also that God can save anyone else out there, no matter how far gone they may seem to be. <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. 
Daryl's out here. If you haven't met Daryl, take, take some time to get to know him and Marge and Khalil, their son. And uh, hey, look at Saul's life, the first couple of verses, because this guy, if you think somebody like Daryl might have been an unlikely convert to Christianity, what about, what about Saul? Remember chapter 8, we've, we've kind of transitioned, we're, we're kind of coming back. Think of chapter 8 almost like a parenthesis, if you will. We've, we, we started hearing about a guy named Philip. Philip went to, to the Samaritans and preached the gospel, and then Philip was sent by God to an Ethiopian, and he shared the gospel with that guy. And now we're back to the beginning of chapter 8 again with Saul. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, Remember, Jesus referred to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And this became a euphemism for those who were following Jesus. They were following the way. If he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so here's Saul. I mean, it's apparent that this guy would be an unlikely convert to Christianity. He is so opposed to Jesus, to the church. He goes to the high priest. He asks for these letters so that he can get cooperation from the Jews in Damascus. He goes 150 miles from the city of Jerusalem just to continue his rampage. There are other things about Saul's life, though, that help us to understand how unlikely a convert this man actually was. For instance, his family was wealthy. We know this because at the end of Acts, or near the end of Acts, he gets in trouble as Paul the Apostle, and he appeals to Rome, he appeals to Caesar as a citizen. Well, he was a Jew, a Jew couldn't be a citizen unless he bought his citizenship, and that cost a lot of money. He was also sent to Jerusalem to study. That cost a lot of money. Saul came from a wealthy family. Now, it's not sinful to be wealthy. It's not sinful to be well-off and to have money. But Jesus did warn us that it's simpler. It's not, it's not so easy, right, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He said it's easier for a rich man to be saved than for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. It's very difficult because riches and wealth kind of insulate us to our need for God. They, they give us a false sense of security about our lives. Saul was also an educated man. I said he was sent to Jerusalem to study. He studied with a guy named Gamaliel. We met Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 17, when he's Paul the Apostle, he's in Athens and he's speaking to the Greeks there and he quotes their philosophers, he quotes their poets from memory. It's, it's fine to be educated. There's a lot of educated people in the room. But we know that the Bible tells us knowledge puffs up. The smarter you become, the more you know, the more knowledge that you gain, you tend to grow in pride. And a prideful person has a difficult time humbling themselves before God and really admitting that there are some things that they don't really know. And there's a sense, there's a perception in academia that faith is for weak-minded people. So that's kind of an uphill battle. And Saul was a religious man. Now, he was described himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisees in Philippians 3. He was meticulously religious uh, we, we know that. He describes himself there in that passage. Most of us would probably think, you know, it's, it's good to have a, a religious person as a neighbor, somebody, you know, they're moral, they have integrity, they're not, you know, we, we can trust them. 
But here's the problem. Religious people depend on themselves to be good enough before God so that God will accept them on their own standing. But the Bible tells us this. It's not on the basis of deeds that we've done in righteousness, but by his mercy he saves us. So it's not anything that I can do. Religious people at their core believe that they save themselves rather than needing God to come and save them and intervene in their life. Saul was from an ambitious family. After all, his first name was Saul. He had been named after the first king of Israel. His family had big expectations for this guy. They had a direction that they wanted his life to go in. And you can imagine how difficult it might have been for him at home in Tarsus. After he goes there and it becomes known that he's now a follower of Jesus. Some of you have experienced that where you step out of line with the faith of your family. Or perhaps they had no faith at all. And now you're following Jesus and it's difficult. And you face a lot of pressure. The Bible says to honor your father and mother, but Jesus also said that if you come to have faith in Jesus, it can create a division in your family. It can be difficult. He's an unlikely convert because he came from a wealthy family, an ambitious family, because he was educated. He was very religious, but he was also persecuting the believers, and it's very apparent he's against Christ and the church. And so as we press into his story, we, we learn this one truth because his life changes 180 degrees that no one anywhere under any circumstances is beyond the reach of the gospel. Look at verses three and four. Look at what they show us here. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's trying to sneak up on the Christians in Damascus, but Jesus surprises him before he ever gets there. And maybe that happened to you somewhere in the past if you're a believer in Christ. Something dropped into your life suddenly, and you found yourself, as it were, face down on the ground before God. Maybe it was an unexpected invitation. Maybe it was an unexpected diagnosis. Maybe it was a loss of a relationship or a job, but something came into your life and it changed everything. Here's the point. No one is too lost for God to find them. Here's Saul traveling to Damascus, going to persecute Christians, but Jesus finds him there on that road. And when he speaks to him, he says, Saul, why do you persecute me? And that sounds kind of unusual, right? Because Saul's persecuting the church, but when you become a follower of Christ, you become part of the body of Christ. And so Jesus is saying to, to Saul there, attack one of mine, you're attacking me. Abuse one of mine, you're abusing me. We heard Kevin allude to it earlier, Matthew 25. Jesus said, whatever you have done for the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. As believers, we're part of the body of Christ. When, when the church suffers, Jesus suffers. In, in verse 5, he just drives it home. He says, and he said, who are you, Lord? Saul's figuring it out. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. And so Jesus says, this is the next step that you should take. Now, in Luke's gospel, and Luke wrote the book of Acts, in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And so here on the Damascus Road, Jesus seeks out the most hate-filled, anti-Christian person walking the planet, perhaps, and he saves him. He did that. He still does that. He still opens hearts and eyes. He still draws people 
to himself by the Spirit. No one under any circumstances, anywhere, is beyond the reach of the gospel. And no one's too lost for God to find them. That was true for Saul and it's true today. And it's also true that no one is too hard for God to break them. Look at what happens here in verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. It must have been an unusual experience. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate or drank. And so Saul is being humbled here. He's being humbled. He, he's blind. The one who was leading this group is now being led. The one who was giving directions is now receiving direction. The one who was going to seize Christians has been seized. God can bring a person low. He can humble you. In the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 5, God exalts the king of Babylon. He, he raises him up so much so that the nations fear this man. But in his greatness, he gets arrogant. And God moves in his life again. Only this time, he drives him out into the fields and he lives outside like an animal. The, the description of this man's life and how it turned from being regal and royal in the throne room to now living outside like an animal, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's terrifying, really. But over time, he came to the realization that God Almighty sits on the throne and he chooses to place men as he wills over nations and kingdoms. And God humbled him. God's able to humble the prideful. No one is too hard for God to break. The risen Christ breaks Saul here on the road to Damascus. In the Old Testament prophet of Jeremiah, God says this, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that shatters the rock. Have you thought of that person? Do you see them in your mind's eye, that person you think they're just too far from God? He could never find them. They're just too hard. They, they, would never, they, don't, they would never listen. Listen, if you believe that no one is too hard for God to break, if, there, if no one's too lost for God to find them, you'll pray in a different way. You'll live out your faith in a different way. You know, there are a lot of things that keep us quiet with our, about our faith, right? They're, that keep us quiet about sharing the gospel with others. One of those things is pessimism. A pessimism about others coming to faith in Jesus. And we think, you know, not him, that, that would never, he's never gonna listen, not her. She would never, do you know what their life is like? And oh, but you, right? You came to faith. So you must be the right material, whatever that is. You, you must be the person that God's looking for. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? Do you know in Romans chapter three what the Bible says? It says no one seeks after God. No one. That means every saved person in the room this morning is a miracle of the grace of God. Every one of us. Not just Daryl, he is, but so are you if you're a follower of Christ. So am I. It's, it's God's work that he does. And if you think that, that there's someone in your web of relationships that's just too far gone or too hard to ever come to faith, you've forgotten who you are and who you were before Christ found you. So let's let the gospel drive that pessimism out of us. No one's too lost for God to find them. No one's too hard for God to break them. No one's too bad for God to save them. Look at these verses beginning with verse 10. 
Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. This is a different Ananias than the one who died in chapter 5. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests. Don't you love how he's informing the Lord of all the things that are going on? He's got authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said, I think it's just one of the, the Lord said, go, go. Look at what he says. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake, for my name's sake. Saul heads to Damascus to persecute Christians. Now he's going to meet one. This guy, Ananias. He's available to God. God speaks to him, says, I'm sending you here to this man, to this particular location. And you can imagine the tension that's in his heart. He's informing the Lord of everything that he knows about Saul. Saul has got a reputation. It has preceded him to Damascus. And and as if Stephen is saying, Lord, we've been praying that this guy wouldn't come here. Now you're sending me to him. I don't want to go. But in verse 15, the Lord tells Ananias, Saul is going to be a chosen instrument of mine. I love that. No one is too bad for God to save No one is so bad that God can't use them for his glory. Some people would have said Kanye West was too bad for God to save. But his life certainly seems to be changing. Continue to pray for him. That godly believers would surround him and help him and disciple him. Saul is a guy who's persecuting Christians, driving them out of their homes, taking their lives, running them out of their jobs. And now God is telling Ananias, I want you to take that banner down from over Saul's life persecutor and I want you to put a new banner over his life chosen instrument of mine hey what banner flies over the lives of the people in your family that you think are just too hard or too bad or too lost for God to save them we tend to see people one way before they know Jesus Christ but you know God sees them as he will remake them in Christ and that ought to shape the way we pray and shape our actions and shape our boldness to go to them with the gospel our care for them our compassion for them and don't miss the rest of verse 15 right who's he going to he's going to carry the name of Jesus to the Gentiles all of us in here who are Gentiles non-Jews we're here this morning because of this guy Saul That's how we got to this place. It's really amazing. And then verse 16, God says, he's gonna suffer for my name's sake. So the one who's caused suffering in the church is now going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Parenthetically, if I I can, there's so much preaching that happens and teaching that happens uh, via the internet and online, I mean, on, on, on television and the radio. So much Christian teaching that happens that, that's really out of line with what the message of the Bible says over and over again. And Saul's life here is an example of that. There's, there's so much teaching that's kind of like pep talk Christianity. 
Hey, your, your best life now, your blessed life now, knowing the favor of God and how everything is just going to be great and just have enough faith to believe in God is going to make everything prosper for you. But Philippians chapter 1 verse 26 says that suffering is part of the plan of God for every follower of Jesus Christ. And it's not easy to preach and it's not easy to live. But there are false teachers who quote the scriptures but don't tell you the whole truth. And it's dangerous to listen to them because you get some expectations in your mind and then when the bottom drops out of your life and things become difficult, you want to shake your fist in the face of God and question his purposes and his plans. And we don't always know what God is working out in his providence over time. But we know that just because you become a Christian, you don't suddenly get a pass on pain card. We're going to suffer, even for the sake of our faith in Jesus. And that was what was happening for Saul, what he was going to look forward to, what he was walking into. In verse 17, I love this verse. Ananias departed and entered the house, so he's being obedient here, he's trusting God. He lays his hands on him and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I love that he says, Brother Saul. He lays his hands on him, he went. I mean, Ananias is trusting God at this moment, right? Because everything inside of him is probably saying, don't go, don't go, don't go, don't go. But he gets over there. And he refers to him as Brother Saul. And he prays, and the Holy Spirit comes on him. And, and look at that next verse. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. That's the right order. He believed, and then he was baptized. And then he took food, and he was strengthened. Hey, listen, uh, if, if you have questions about what that was, those scales that fell from his eyes, you should ask uh, Kevin Allen, ask Rick Burris, ask David Gantenbein, ask Cody, but don't ask me. <laughs> you know who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Luke was a physician. If Luke didn't bother to explain it to us any more clearly than this, it's not the point. <laughs> don't get so hung up on it. You know what the point is? The point is what the hymn writer said. Once I was lost... Now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see that's the point. The spirit came in his life, and his life has completely changed. I don't know what this guy, I don't know. He doesn't tell us. But what we know is that he sees now, and he's baptized. When you come to faith in Jesus like Saul, you should be baptized like Saul. Baptism is a public profession of faith. When you're lowered into that water, it's, it's a reminder that you've died to yourself, to your old way of life, to your sins. They're buried now, just as Christ died for our sins and was buried. And when you're lifted up out of the water, it's a picture of being raised just as Jesus was raised from the dead. You are now walking in a new life in Christ Jesus. That's a picture of baptism, and you ought to enter into that if you've come to faith in Jesus. It says he ate and he was strengthened, and then it says this. Look at verses, well, verses 19 through 25. We'll go through that whole passage. What I want to say there is this, that no one is too strong for God to surround. So no one's too lost for God to find, too hard for God to break, too bad for God to save. No one is too strong for God to surround. Look, look at the text here, and, and you'll see what I mean. Verse 19b, 
For some days, we're starting there. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. So he stays in Damascus, and the disciples have taken him in, which is amazing in and of itself, right? And immediately, I love this, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He didn't wait for training. He didn't wait for a seminar. He didn't need a lot of discipleship. He just immediately started out to proclaim Jesus, said, he's the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon him this name? And has he not come here also for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So things have really changed for him. He came to Damascus to capture Christians, to bind them up, to kill some of them, and now he's on the hit list. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in the basket. I think one of the things I circled in my Bible is it was when many days had passed, his disciples took care of him. No one is too strong for God to surround. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, he surrounds you with his people. And I love the fact here that there are now more people who are believing in Jesus because of Saul because of his testimony, because of his proclamation of Jesus as the Son of God. Saul is a new Christian, but he already has disciples coming after him. Do you have any disciples coming after you? How long have you been a Christian? Anyone come to faith in Jesus because you've shared the gospel with them? Anyone growing stronger in Christ because you're helping them understand the gospel and walking with Jesus? It should be true of all of us. He's just carrying out the great commission of Jesus and it's happening for him and God has surrounded him with the church, with people. There are many things that are going on here in this text that could have never happened in Saul or through Saul without the help of others around him. Someone baptized him, someone fed him, they took him in, they sheltered him, they cared for him, they took him to the synagogues, They, they did all of this. And now the Jews want to kill him The Jews decided they wanted to kill Jesus. Saul and the Jews decided they wanted to kill Christians and persecute them. And now the Jews have decided we want to kill that Christian right there, Saul. And that's what's going on in his life. But his new family helps him. They surround him. They help get him out of the city. He's a gifted man. He's a powerful man. He's a leader, but he needed others. No one's too strong for God to surround. Verses 26 and 27 just kind of continue that that thought. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, of course, right? They did not believe that he was a disciple. They weren't trusting him, but Barnabas took him. Here's a guy they trust, Barnabas from chapter 4. The disciples trust him. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. He went in and out then among those in Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, those Greek-speaking Jews, but they were still seeking to kill him and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. This is a difficult life that Saul has stepped into since the road to Damascus. 
Believers haven't trusted him, but God has moved in the lives of these two guys. You know, there's more than one conversion happening in this text. It's not just Saul that's being converted. Ananias has been converted. Barnabas has been converted. These guys are looking at Saul and thinking, should we enter in? And God speaks to him, moves them, and they do. It's not just Saul being converted here. It's believers who are being converted saying, hey, this is somebody who's truly come to faith. You should engage with them. You should help them. You should help build up their faith. I I love how the text falls out just that way. I think also it teaches us something about New Testament believers and the New Testament church. The New Testament doesn't know anything of a healthy believer living outside of the fellowship of a local church. Saul needed the church and he became part of that church and they leaned into his life. It's a powerful thing. No one anywhere under any circumstances is beyond the reach of the gospel. No one's too lost for God to find them, too hard for God to break them, too bad for God to save them, too strong for God to surround them. No one is too scarred for God to use them too scarred for God to use them. I love verses 28 and 29, how he's going in and out among those in Jerusalem. He's declaring boldly the name of the Lord. He's he's moving on with his life. He's continuing to share the gospel. There's nothing about Saul's past that's holding him back, that's limiting his future. You think about who he was and all that he had done. How could God use a guy like this? How could God save a man like this and then use him for his glory? It it doesn't matter what your scars are in your life. Anything that you did in your life before coming to Christ, none of those things limit what God can do through you. Did you hear that? Take that banner down from over your life. Jesus has. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all our sins. Now, I understand in some practical ways there might be some limits on your life because of broken trusts and things like that with people. You're not just going to be able, perhaps, because of your prior life to Christ, to just walk into certain people's lives because of things you've said or done to them. I get that. But God can use you. And truly, there's no limit to what God can do. There was no limit here. God can use us in spite of the scars we have. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It talks about the fact that God means to use our scars, our suffering and our pain, to bring comfort and encouragement to those who are also suffering. And that's what he's doing with Saul. No one is too scarred for God to use them. And so the brothers get him safely out of the city. He's just running from one place to the next. He's able to stay for a short time and work, and then he has to move on. And he's left the city now, and all of the church is feeling the effects of what God has done here, right? Look at verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That would be a great verse for us to pray over Foothills Baptist Church. Over the church in Phoenix, over the church in Arizona and in the West and in the United States and over the church wherever she is in the world, whether there's two or three gathered somewhere in Asia in someone's home for fear of persecution or there are thousands gathered in a large room two or three or four or five times across the weekend. Oh God, we pray that we would be built up and walk in peace and that we would walk in the fear of the Lord 
and the comfort of the Spirit and that you would multiply. It's God's work. He does it. No one anywhere under any circumstances. No one anywhere under any circumstances is beyond the reach of the gospel. No one's too lost for God to find them, too hard for God to break them, too bad for God to save them, too scarred for God to use them, too strong for God to surround them. This message, this text, appears to be very centered on Saul, the person of Saul, and what took place here in his life. It's Saul-centric. But let's not miss the fact that this is really all about Jesus. And that's where I want to end this morning. It's all about Jesus. Think about the comparison. Saul had authority. He had authority from the chief priest to go and persecute Christians. But who stopped him cold on the road to Damascus? Jesus. Because Jesus has authority that supersedes all others. He has authority to build his church. And he said, even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's about Jesus and his authority. Saul had an agenda. He wanted to go to Damascus and persecute Christians and stamp out the church and extinguish the light that Jesus had lit by his spirit. But it's the agenda of Jesus that is sovereign over all of those others. It's his agenda to choose a persecutor of Christians and turn him into a proclaimer of the gospel. And he can do that with any one of us. Certainly this passage teaches us that those people that we may pessimistically think are too far from God to be saved. They can be saved, but we know that that's true because Jesus is alive from the dead. He is alive from the dead. He has authority to build his church. He has the authority to supersede any agenda that anyone might have to discredit him, to disrupt the work of the church, or to put it to an end in the world now. Jesus is alive, and we go forth with the gospel in his power, in his enablement, in his authority to see what he'll do in lives of people. If you're a believer this morning and, and there's someone in your mind, in your family, in your network of friendships, and you've been pessimistic and perhaps you haven't prayed for them as much as, as you have been because you've lost some hope and you're thinking they're just too far, they're just too hard, whatever it is, would you remember this text? Would you go back into it and recite it and look at it and reread it again and again and see that Jesus is at work and he can save them? And pray with fresh eyes and pray with a fresh, encouraged heart for that person that needs Christ. And if you're not yet a believer in Christ, perhaps you came in this morning and you had a banner over your life that said, I'm, I'm too, it's been too long, I'm too far from God and he wouldn't be interested in me. And I'm not sure I believe all of this. Well, perhaps now God has spoken to your life and into your heart. And perhaps this morning you're willing to confess that there's sin in your life and you need to turn and you need to put your trust in Christ. You're not too lost for him to find you. You're not too hard for him to break you. I, I would pray God's mercy really on your life that you wouldn't wait so long that you would become so hard that it's a devastating kind of thing. It's a, but God will move in your life to call you to Christ. He'll do whatever it takes. He wants you to know him. Perhaps this morning would be the day that you would become that unlikely convert. Today would be the day when you would say yes to Christ, that you'd follow him sometime in the days ahead in baptism, that you'd declare your faith in him publicly. Today could be the day for you to do that. Whether you're a believer or not, be encouraged by what God is telling us here in the gospel, in this conversion of Saul. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. I thank you for the message.
that we have before us. And Father, I thank you for the believers who are in this room and I pray that many of them would be encouraged and as they think about that person, perhaps it's a parent or a brother or a sister, another family member. Perhaps it's someone at work that they've spoken with and uh, they've received an antagonistic response or maybe no response at all. There's just no, it's just a sense of apathy about the gospel. And Father, sometimes we get pessimistic and we think it'll never happen and it could never happen. And we forget the fact that you saved us. You changed our lives. You certainly saved this man's soul. Is it possible for anyone to be further from you, God, than this man who was persecuting the church so viciously? Father, remind us of the good news of the gospel and that you are at work in the world. And by your spirit, you are drawing people to yourself. And so refresh our hearts this morning. Help us to lift that pessimistic banner over that person's life and pray in a fresh way for their salvation and to engage with them in a compassionate way that they might know Jesus and they might see you in us. And Father, for any person that's in the room this morning that hasn't yet come to faith in Jesus, I pray that you would draw them to Christ. I pray that they would open their heart, that they would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. That they would know that you can set them on a new path. You can set them in a new direction. Their life can be changed radically. And it's a little intimidating, I think, Father, when we see this story of the change that happened in Saul and all of the things he faced so early on. Father, I pray for courage in the life of that person who's thinking right now, who's considering trusting Christ. That you would work deeply in their heart and that they would say yes they would trust in Jesus. Father, I pray that they would reach out to someone, one of us, one of our pastors here this morning, someone sitting near them in the pew and say, I want to talk about what it means to know Jesus and walk with him, to trust in him. I want to do that today. God, I pray that they would not leave this place without having that conversation with one of us this morning. And that someone today, some unlikely convert, would come to faith because of your mighty work in their life. Jesus, you are, you are building your church. Your agenda is sovereign. We want to fall in line with it and be your people and follow you faithfully. Help us as we do that. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.